0: You know, that last bit of that song there, too, when it says, I am a child of God. You know, that's a wonderfully encouraging thing, to be a child of God. Because if you think about that, it doesn't mean you're an adult yet. And if there's anything we know about children, I don't know if sometimes maybe we have this picture that, you know, we're a grown adult child. No, no, no. We're that one-year-old who's just learning to take their first steps, And along with those taking those steps comes falling on our face and getting back up and continuing to walk, and the whole way along you have your Father, your eternal Heavenly Father, walking with you, picking you up, dusting you off, and helping you to carry on walking with Him. We do not walk by our own power, we do not have our own strength that we rely upon, but we totally and completely rely on Jesus Christ, just like a child, just like that little child who is confident that their next meal will always come, confident that the heat will be turned on and the lights will be turned on, never thinking of where the bills are paid from and how they're going to be provided for, but just trusting their parent. And so when we see that, when we hear, I am a child of God, remember, you are totally and completely dependent upon your Lord Jesus Christ, and that is the most wonderful, safe place to be. And that's totally a freebie. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for the power, the truth of your word. I pray that as we approach the Bible today, you would speak to us by the power of your spirit. It is only through your illumination, through your awakening of our heart, that we can learn and we can grow and we can come to know more of you. So I pray that you would bless us this day, in Jesus' name, amen. By the way, I'm Matthew Rowley, I'm from Cochrane, I, uh, I've known Pastor John since we were both seminary students together, so I'm glad to be able to be at his church. Uh, I only have six kids, so uh, you know I'm starting to have a decent-sized family, but uh, <laughs> they weren't able to come today. But So today I want to ask you a simple question, do you ever ask why? We ask why over a lot of things, the big things and the small things. We ask why did the light not stay green just long enough for me to get through, and instead I had to stop and wait. We can ask why over why someone would be wearing a Saskatchewan Roughriders shirt when we know the Eskimos are better. But a lot of us at one point in time or another have come to to the place where we ask the big why's we ask, why did this happen? Why did this person have to die? Why is my child sick? It's actually a very famous trope of movies. Have you ever seen that, where someone shakes their fist at the sky and says, why? There was a philosophy professor teaching his college students all about the the ins and outs of philosophy, asking these big questions and answering them through the the great words of Plato and Aristotle and Nietzsche. And they were wrestling all semester, learning these complex ideas, these explanations of the world and how the world worked. They were searching and studying and preparing for their final exam. And on the day of the final exam, they all came in and sat down expecting complicated questions about the ins and outs of all these different people's philosophies, and they were prepared, they were ready to write and to prove that they knew the stuff so they could get that A. They pulled out the sheet of paper with the test on it, and there at the top of the page was one solitary word. Why? And so, of course, being good philosophy students in college, they wrote, and they wrote, and they wrote. They tried to answer the question why. They tried to solve that age-old question, what is the meaning of life? Why is everything there? Some of them went on for page after page after page, but the one who actually got the A at the end of the class was the guy who was a bit of a smart aleck and said, why not? You know, we're all saved, and it is a wonderful thing, and it is vitally important that as Christians, we stop, and we reflect on our salvation, and we ask this important question. Why? Why am I saved? What is it about me that makes me so important that the King of the universe, the God of all creation, the Son of God, would die for me? Now, thankfully, unlike the philosophers, we don't have to go off into a corner and try and think our way to an answer. We don't have to come up with something brilliant on our own that can somehow defy human ability and come to an answer. We can turn to the Scriptures. So please turn with me to Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. If you don't have a Bible, they have some in the back, and they can just put up your hand and they can hand them out to you. All righty. So we're studying in Ephesians 2, this is of course written by Paul, and he was writing to the Ephesians, who were one of the the better churches. It's funny, you read some of the letters to the churches, like 1 Corinthians, and uh, Paul is giving them a rather strong encouragement to stop doing what they're doing and start doing right. But in the case of the Ephesians, he's writing a letter to people that he considers to be saints fellow servants of Christ Jesus. But as he's speaking to these well-seasoned, mature Christians, he doesn't simply pat them on the back and say, good job. He starts in the most wonderful place. And you were dead. What a great way to start any message. You were dead. You were stone cold. You were laying on a slab. You were in the morgue. There was no sign of life in you. You were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and in the sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and you were by nature children of wrath just like the rest of mankind, you were dead. Paul doesn't start us off with this wonderful, glowing account of how you are so important and so much better and so much more useful to God. Paul doesn't start us off with telling us about our wonderful attributes and how much because we are made in the image of God and we are so perfectly crafted that, that we are somehow more perfect and more suitable for salvation. Rather, he starts us off with an evaluation of who we were before God ever got a hold of us. You, me, we were dead, utterly incapable of doing anything. Now, this is a very important idea because, as we all know, we're all pretty sure we were alive and that, in fact, we did all the saving sometimes, aren't we? we can get into the mindset of thinking that somehow there was something about us that enabled us to hear the word of Jesus Christ when others didn't, when others turned their backs. There must have been something just a little sharper, a little quicker, a little more on, a little more spiritually attuned that enabled us to see, to open our eyes, to come to life by our own power. But Paul lists off in detail just how dead we were. Yeah, you. You were dead in your trespasses. You were dead in sin. You were lost because you were walking in sin. You were wanting sin. You were desiring sin with everything that was in you. Somewhere else in Scriptures it says, every thought of man's heart is inclined towards evil always. And this is the state of spiritual deadness that we once walked in. Not only that, but we were following the prince of the power of the air. We were sons of perdition and daughters of perdition. We're equal opportunity here. We were all followers of the devil. We weren't neutral. We weren't just dead and laying there doing nothing. We were actually deliberately walking the other way, heading to hell full speed with joy. Enemies of God. The same spirit, that prince of the power of the air that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is is an important idea because we can look out at the world, of course, as I used to do as a wonderful legalistic little kid. And we can look at ourselves and see all the work that God has done in us, and we can say, man, I'm better. I'm just better than all those people. Look at those sons of disobedience over there and all the sins that they're doing. Well, I can assure you I would never do that. I would never sin, I'm above such things, right? We can picture the sons of disobedience as someone other or something other. We can look around the world at all the sin, degradation, loss, problems, diseases that come with evil, and we can say, thank God I'm not one of them. And Paul says, you, you were dead. You, you were just like all of those, and you once lived in the passion of your flesh, carrying out the desires of your body and mind. You were desiring all of the things of the world. You were just as lost, just as cold, just as much a child of wrath as anyone else. You were just as heading for eternal damnation. You're not special doesn't that just get you? Doesn't that just hurt? I don't know about you, but I like to think that I'm the center of the universe. Now, I'm sure everyone likes to think that they're the center of the universe, so I can put you at ease. I am, so you're not. But isn't this true that we we think that we're really important in this world? Like somehow if we weren't there, the world would be lost without us. We think that we're utterly unique in this world, and in a way we are. God has made us utterly special and unique, but there's nothing about us that is so important that God needed us. In fact, notice the example that we find in the Scriptures, you know, when we think maybe we're more perfect or more holy or more righteous and that's why God chose us. Stack that up against someone named Samson, that holy righteous guy who couldn't even manage to not go and marry a Philistine woman twice. That guy who, just no matter what he did, was continually sinning and failing and messing up, and yet God used him. Look at the man David, the man after God's own heart. I hope someday I can get that on my tombstone. If that's all I get, I'm content. But that man after God's own heart was so lost and blind without Jesus Christ, he managed to be both an adulterer and a murderer when he started trying to do things on his own. Moses, that great paragon of awesomeness, big words, Moses, the man who brought the law of God, the great prophet, sinned so badly he couldn't even enter the promised land himself because he was Just a man, just a child of wrath, like the rest of us, before God took him. And as we wrestle with our salvation, it is vital that we have this question of why we are saved set in this understanding of ourselves as just as lost, just as broken, just as desperately in need of all that Christ has for us as anyone else. Otherwise, we give in to spiritual pride, to legalism, to Phariseeism. You remember those wonderful Pharisees? Jesus talks about them in the Scripture. Jesus met them often. They were these people who were so incredibly good at following the law, and yet they utterly missed the actual Son of God walking in their midst. And these people who were so perfect at following the law, Christ Jesus called whitewashed tombs. You look really good on the outside, and all you've got inside is dry, dead, dusty bones. And if we for a moment get an idea that we were anything other than that child of perdition, anything other than totally dead, then we slowly, and sometimes less than slowly, morph into those Pharisees whitewashed tombs. So this was the state that we were in. This is the state that the whole world is in, following the prince of the power of the air, dead, lost, beyond hope. So what happened? If you are utterly incapable of doing anything to save yourself, how could you be saved? You sure can't climb up to God. You know that story of the Tower of Babel where They were separated from God, but they had a brilliant idea. I know what we'll do, we'll build a tower, we will climb to God. I don't know what they were hoping to achieve. So they started working. And God came amongst them, looked around at what they were doing and said, hmm, I'm going to teach you a valuable lesson, humans, about just what you can't do. And he confused their language and they started fighting amongst each other and they spread out and that tower never got finished. When we try to build our way to God, to get to God by our own strength, every single time we fail. This is the unique thing about the Christian gospel. Every other religion, idolatry, says, here's what you must do to be good enough for God. And Christianity comes along and says, you're dead. There ain't nothing you can do to get to God. So then the best part of this whole passage comes along. But God, but God, you were utterly dead, lost, hopeless, and couldn't do a thing. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And He raised us up with Him, and He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself, but this is a gift of God, not of works, so that no man may boast. Isn't that powerful? You were dead, you were gone, but God was anything but helpless. God was anything but unable to save the most lost, helpless running towards Satan soul that ever existed. You hear some of the stories about these people who've been saved. I love John Newton I spend a lot of time reading a lot of people in the 18th century with the stuff that I'm doing in my studies, and John Newton is one of my favorite. He was so lost, he was so wicked and evil that when he fell overboard, his crew hated him so much they used a harpoon to get him back. They just threw a harpoon at him and dragged him back on board. They hated him. The slaves that he was carrying on his slave ship hated him. He was a son of the devil if there ever was one. And he came to faith, and he wrote that amazing, timeless classic, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. That's a really good word that we got to use a little more, a wretch, someone so lost and hopeless, there's no way that anyone could even value the person. But God, because of the great love with which he loved you, with which he loved me, actually took you. Made you alive, took this dead thing laying on the stone, breathed life into it, and then didn't stop there with just bringing it to life, but actually raised it up. Seated it in the heavenlies in Christ. God took us and didn't just say, I'm going to give you some life. He said, you are my child, and I have made you alive in love. Because of the richness of His mercy, He didn't have to do it. You know, there's this myth that that goes on out there that, yes, God had everything except fellowship. He needed mankind, and that's why He made them, and this is why He saved them. Well, let me get that out of the way. God doesn't need anything from anybody ever. God has perfect fellowship in the wonderful Trinity. This is one of the miracles of His revelation, is that God is utterly and totally complete and beyond needing anything from anyone, and yet for some reason, He still made us and He still loved us. And then while we were busy shaking our fists at Him in anger, He saved us. He made us alive in Christ. You know, it's the most wonderful personal thing He could do. God, this great eternal out there being that we could not even hope to bring into our minds if we thought for our entire life and people have tried and failed, this God emptied himself, became in the form of a servant, was born as a baby, grew, lived life, had to eat, had to work, had to do all the things that we had to do, had to obey his mother, grew, walked the earth, taught the truth, raised up disciples, and then after all that he had done, he was betrayed, he was crucified, and he lay dead in that tomb. And then on the third day, by the might of his power, he rose. He broke the chains of sin and death, the things that had stopped every human from having relationship with God ever. He broke them. By the power of His might. He made us alive in Christ. This idea of Christ saving us. You know, in Romans 10.9 it says, If you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. This central act of the resurrection of Christ defines who we are as Christians. It is about truth and belief. When we are raised... By Him in Christ, we are given the ability by grace to believe a truth that is impossible for a worldly mind to believe. As I was driving up here, I was listening to Knowing God by J.I. Packer. I love modern technology that you can listen to a book while you're driving. Isn't that great? There was one day when I was a really young, not-so-good Christian and not-so-good kid where I read a book once driving down Highway 2 all the way from Edmonton to Calgary. Don't do that. And now you don't have to. You can just listen to it and someone else reads it. But in Knowing God, Packer is describing this amazing thing, knowing God. He says, you know, it's possible to know of God, just like you know of a person. I'm a great student of history, and I love Winston Churchill. I know much of Winston Churchill, and yet I've never met the man. I don't know him. And in the same way, it is possible as people to know much of God, to be a scholar, to study books, to write books, to teach other people about God, and yet never to know Him personally. But what God did when He made a way by grace, when He made us alive by grace, is He gave us the power, the ability to truly know Him. As our Lord, as our Savior, as our Father. And to live a life in true relationship with Him. This is something extraordinary. Again, you look around at the other so-called religions of the world, they're not interested in a knowledge of God, actually knowing Him. They just want you to do the right thing and make the right sacrifices. And you'll be fine. God says, sacrifices I don't desire. I want you to know me. I want you to obey me. I want you to live my life with me. For it's by grace you have been saved. I love this picture. By grace you have been saved through faith. And he's really careful to spell it out. And this is not of yourself. This is not by works. This is not because of something you did. Growing up, I thought that the way salvation worked was God Paid the down payment on this mortgage of salvation. God started the process. He got you saved. And then you spent the rest of your life working hard, being good, and paying him back. Because don't you know salvation's worth a lot? And every time you step out of line, and every time you sin, and every time you fail, he's frowning. He's standing there in the corner, wondering why you're not paying him back as quickly as you could. And this says no. It is by grace. It is not of works. It is not you working for your salvation. Now, it does involve a change, doesn't it? When God changes our lives, we walk His way. Packer was just talking about this. The new creation, the person born of God, made alive by Christ, seated in the heavenlies, hates sin as much as their father does. They walk towards God. Because he is their father. Just like that little child taking their first steps looks to mom and dad for someone to walk to. This is the power of Christ in us. So we can think that it's all of us. There's actually that story of the guy who got his foot caught in the railroad track. Have you heard that one? Train starts coming and he's getting a little worried. And so, as you do when you're in a tight spot, he starts praying. He says, God... If you get my foot out of this railroad track, I'll be a better person. Nothing happens. God, if you get my foot out of this railroad track, I'll stop smoking and drinking and going to wild parties. And nothing happens. Okay, God, if you get my foot out of this railroad track, I'll go to church every Sunday. Nothing happens. Finally, in desperation, he says, okay, God, I'll give everything to you. I will serve you with my whole life. I will become a minister of the gospel. I will devote myself to you. And his foot comes out, and he says, never mind, God, I got it. It's a humorous thing, but this is the way we operate in our salvation a lot of the time, isn't it? We're very concerned that God help us out of our tough times, but in the rest of the times, we're going, yeah, I think I've got this, God. You can take a holiday today, and I will do this. I will make my own plans. I will follow my own dreams. I will live my own life, and if I get in a tough spot, I promise you'll be the first to call. And surprisingly, our life doesn't work the way it should. And surprisingly, we find a struggle in our Christian life. We find that when we are, we are totally and completely lost without God, and this doesn't change after that moment of salvation. We are still every day saved by grace, and we are still every day only in Christ able to do anything. Able to live at all. In Him we live and move and have our being. And you know, a wonderful truth to think about is that while Christ was nailed up there on that cross, and while those people were down there mocking Him, He was giving them the breath that they took as they cursed the Savior. Not only that, but He was holding together the world, including those nails that held His hands to that cross. When we say, in Him we live and move and have our being, everything of us is utterly dependent upon Christ. In every way. So if we get this picture of our salvation as me plus Jesus, we're missing it. When we are a new creation in Christ, when we, the old person has passed away and is dead and the new one has come, we are totally and utterly and completely revolving our life around Jesus Christ, and this is where it starts to really dig into the way we live. Because there's a lot of us where that's a struggle. Oh, I'm really good on certain areas, for sure. I can follow Jesus here, here, and here, but oh, 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 Jesus, now, you're asking too much if you take this precious thing of mine that I really want control over. I like to tell people that there's three main ways that Jesus tests our trust in Him. Cash kids and call. I'm a good Baptist. I alliterate. God loves to say, What are you going to do with your money? Oh, you you trust me, do you? Let's see. What happens if you don't have any money? What happens if you don't know where the next bill is coming from? We'll find out. He loves to test us with our kids, doesn't he? He loves to make us worried. Not him, but we love to worry. We love to be doubting and questioning. And what if they don't grow up right? And what if they slip and fall? And what if they break their leg? And what if they don't get a big job and become a doctor and provide for me in my old age? What if, what if, what if? And God says, trust me with your kids. I was talking to someone the other day who was really worried that their child wouldn't go to college and get a good education and all of that. And I said to him, you know, in God's economy, the best thing for your child might be to die. You go and look at the 12 apostles, you heard the stories of how they've all died, right? There was only one apostle who managed to avoid a violent death. Every other one was brutally killed by somebody. And the one apostle who survived was John. And the reason he survived was because they boiled him in oil and he wouldn't die. So they put him on the the island of Patmos and left him to rot. Following Jesus costs, and that's sometimes we're good with that for ourselves, but when it comes to our children, the things we value the most, our family, the people who are closest to us, the idea of watching them follow Christ and find a hard road can sometimes be more than we can take. And the final thing that he uses as a trust test to show us just how much we rely upon him is our calling in life, what we are going to do, how we are going to live, where is our focus? It's a very popular message that the way you should live your life is by following your heart. Have you ever heard that? I call it the Disney message the number of those Disney movies where someone comes in and says, I don't want to do what I want to do or have to do. I want to do what I feel like doing and they go off and of course it works out well and everyone sees that they were right in the end and everyone lives happily ever after. And Jesus says, no, your life is not yours. I did not make you alive so that you could live your life, but I made you alive because the only life worth living is in Christ. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, this not of yourself, this is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. So why did he do it? I mean, if salvation is all about God, and He's done everything, and I'm not actually capable of doing anything, nor was I ever ever better than anyone else, why did He save me? Is it just for me? Is it just that He loved me so much He wanted me to be saved? I think if that was the case, then it'd be like that Left Behind movie where we all just right through the ceiling as soon as we get saved and leave a neat little pile of clothes folded behind us. But that's not the case, isn't it? You've been saved and yet you're still here so what are you supposed to do? Well, thankfully, Paul tells us. Verse 10, we are His workmanship. I love that. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. You are His workmanship, and God doesn't make multi-tools. Did you know that? God doesn't make a one-size-fits-all Christian that He can just throw at any old problem. But God has a perfect, unique plan for this world. And you have been created in Christ Jesus like a fine, precision instrument to fit into that plan, to do one job that no one else can do, to live your life in Christ according to His will. That's really neat. You know, I I love to look in the mirror and I love to see all of the flaws that I have. I know you can't see any. Perfect in every way. But you can look in the mirror and you can see all the flaws, all the problems, all the, the things that don't make you perfect. You can see the experiences, the past, the struggles, the trials, the things that have made you, you, and you can think, man, I wish I was someone else. And God says here, you are His workmanship. You are a perfectly precision-crafted instrument. You were made the way you were. You were made with the flaws, the failures, the, the hurts, the pains, the struggles that you have because God is using you. And it's in those hurts, pains, struggles that we remind ourselves that we aren't doing it. As Paul said, in my weakness, he is strong. In my failure, he is complete. When I'm not doing enough in my own strength, he shows that he does it all through us. My uncle's a mechanic. Any mechanics in the house? There you go. He's got this toolbox that you could rent out for apartment buildings. You know, you could have probably 20 people living in this thing. It's so big. Drawer after drawer after drawer of tools. And the funny thing is, a lot of these tools are dusty. You can tell me about that, right? A lot of these tools that haven't been used in a year. And you ask him, why do you have that tool? I mean, if it's dusty, and it probably cost $1,000 and made your wife a little angry about the cost why would you keep this tool? He says, because one truck is going to come in one day, and if I don't have that one tool, I will be unable to fix that one engine, or to change that one bearing, or to do whatever that particular job is. And this is the way we are. God has built us specifically. He has given us our life precisely He has given us our qualities purposefully so that we can do what He has laid out for us to do. And thankfully, that means we don't have to gather dust in the drawer because this plan is all-encompassing. It is complete. It is for every single day of your life. You're never too old or too young for God to work through you by the power of His Spirit. And there's never a day where He doesn't have a purpose for you. There's no holidays in the kingdom of heaven, by the way. It's a good life. You wouldn't want to take a holiday from following Jesus, would you? God made us perfectly, created in Christ. Everything of this workmanship is wrapped around our existence in Christ. Everything that we have and are able to do, all of our gifts, all of our strengths, come by the Spirit in Christ, and we've been created in Him with Christ as the center for a purpose, to do good works. Oh, Matthew, you said not to be a legalist, you're not supposed to be doing that stuff. Pay attention. To do good works which God prepared beforehand. Good works guided by Him. The call that God has placed on your life, not things that you do in order to look better for people. I was talking to a youth group the other day and I said to them, Did you know it is possible that picking up garbage on the side of the road could be a sin? And that kind of got them. Of course not. Picking up garbage on the side of the road is always good. But if I go out there to pick up garbage on the side of the road with my reflective vest on so that everyone can see me and I stop and wave at every person on the street and I've got a sign going along beside me saying, Matthew Rowley, the garbage picker champion. I'm sinning because I do my works for the honor that I can get from people. I do my works with a focus on me. But what God says here is in Christ, centered on Christ, focused on Christ, living for Christ, I have given you a job, a mission, a purpose. By the way, it's probably going to hurt. For in the world you will have trouble but he promises he'll leave you his peace. It's probably going to be hard. For me, it meant I had to move to Ontario. I know there's some Ontarians in the house, but it really is as bad as everything you've heard about it. For me, it meant leaving my family, my home, everything I love, the mountains, the wide skies, and going to a different place to obey Jesus. Thankfully, it also meant coming back. For, for some, it means sacrificing everything they have. There's a story out of, Uh, I think it was Czechoslovakia back in the day, during the communist era, Balkan states. And there was a pastor, and the, the authorities, communist authorities, did not want him to preach anymore. And they wanted him to deny Christ because he was inconvenient to them. He was causing a real problem for them because as he served God, people were turning away from communism. But they knew they could put a gun to his head all day long And tell him to deny Christ and it wouldn't do a thing. They knew that he would stand. They knew that he would be faithful. So they took his 12-year-old son. And they put the gun to his head. And they said, deny Christ. And the son said, don't do it. And he said, I can't do it. And they killed his son in front of him. Serving Christ Jesus costs you everything, and sometimes it's not as simple as dying for Him. But it can mean watching your world go sideways and not understand why. It can mean being in a situation with, where you have to deal with the pain and the suffering and the sorrow of this world. The hurts caused by people who reject you. Those who will betray you just like they betrayed your Lord and Savior. We can get this kind of romantic image of following God and think it's just going to be so easy as I march onto war with the Holy Spirit at my side and everyone falling aside around me. But it's a hard road. The message of the gospel is not, come follow me and I'll make life easy. The message is, take up your cross and follow me. Come to the hill of crucifixion. Sacrifice yourself for the only thing that is worth anything. And I will use you as my hands and feet. I will work in this world. I will build my kingdom. And the gates of hell will not stand against it. This is the message of the gospel. This is what it means when he says you are his workmanship created to do things created to go out in the power of the Spirit, to preach the gospel, to change this world, to change this country, because the power of Jesus Christ is the power that can do that. Those twelve apostles who were killed, all but one, they didn't die for nothing. Those twelve apostles who came from Palestine, a place where there was really nothing going on, the backwater of the Roman Empire by the power of the Spirit, by the word that they preached, by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, changed an empire, changed the known world. Not of themselves, not by works, so that none of them could boast either. For it's by grace that every single one of those people was saved and has been saved. It's really easy to get discouraged when we look around our world today. We can forget that there is a God in heaven, that there is power in the blood. That's a good old song. Have you heard that one? There is power in the blood. In Jesus' work, all things are complete, and we can walk in them. So your life has a purpose. God saved you with a purpose. God saved you with a mission. God gave you a call. God gave you a task and nobody has the right. Nobody has the ability to say, oh, I'm sorry, that's not my gifting. I'm not good with words. I'm a man of slow speech and slow tongue. Do you remember Moses saying that in the scriptures? God said, that's all right, I'll send Aaron. You notice Aaron couldn't get a word in edgewise. Because when God grabs hold of your life, when God works through you by His Spirit, God will do things you didn't know you could do because you're not doing them. You have a call. You have a purpose. You have a mission. The answer to the question of why is to remind yourself, look who you were. Look what God did and reflect on why He did it. Your life is a mission. Your life is a call. You've been sent to have an eternal impact on this dark and suffering world. And everything you do in your life, is that opportunity in the Spirit to have an eternal impact. You know, there's so many people who work their whole lives to find meaning, to find purpose, to do something that will last beyond them. And they get to the end of their life just like Koheleth in Ecclesiastes, and they say, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity, a chasing after the wind. Nothing on this earth has any lasting importance. So look beyond the earth. You are His workmanship. This world is full of need and of darkness, and the call to every Christian is to walk the path of the Christian life that God set out before us. We cannot do this on our own, and we must have His strength. We must be in communion with Him. We must walk with Him. We must live His life. And each of us has a special world we're in. You're a mechanic. You're a minister of the gospel. I worked in a pipeline shop. Let me tell you about the needs in a pipeline shop for the gospel. Every one of us has a world that we live in. Every one of us has people that we come into contact with that perhaps will never see Another Christian face. And God has given us the duty, the joyous task, the mission to be His hands and feet, to be His voice. You got to walk the walk, let me tell you. And you've got to talk the talk. And when we do that in the power of the Spirit in our daily life, we will see people come to know Him. People discipled, people growing, people going from the Sauls of this world who are killing the Christians to the Pauls of this world who are preaching the gospel and seeing lives changed across the world. Not because of what we do, because we can't boast, but because of who He is. The purpose of salvation is that we serve God and that we all are, for every moment of time we spend on this earth, focused on Him. You know who you were. (laughs) I know who I was. And you know what He's done. So how are you going to walk into the things that He has for you? How are you going to submit your life to Christ today? How are you going to give up that thing that you've been hanging on to? And this is where I'm going to leave off preaching and get to meddling. Every single one of us, every day has something that God is working on in our lives. There is something that by His Spirit He is convicting us of that we need to change, to give up, to surrender, to set down before Him, to walk closer with Him. None of us is any better than anybody else, and none of us is so perfect that we've got it all worked out. And I know I've talked to some old faithful Christians. I've talked to people who've walked in the faith a lot longer than me, and they know that truth too. So this day, I ask you to stop and to listen to what God is saying in your conscience and to ask, where are you calling me to change, to give up, to walk closer with you, to be evermore the workmanship that you have made me to be? We've got the, on the back there that uh, basic sign We are here because God made us alive and saved us as precision tools. And He crafted us to glorify Him and to have that eternal impact by doing the good works He prepared for us. That's what I want you to take away. If you forget anything else, especially my bald spot, forget that. I want you to know this. You are His workmanship and you've been created with a purpose. You've been saved by grace through faith. You were dead and you were alive. So walk to glorify Him and live His life today. Let's pray.